This is Stereoactive Presents. I'm your host, Jeremiah McVeigh, and in this episode, I'm joined by Jacqueline Soler to discuss Mank, a film directed by David Fincher and distributed by Netflix. Mank stars Gary Oldman, Amanda Seyfried, and Lily Collins. In just a moment, you'll hear Jacqueline's review, followed by my discussion with her about the film. Mank tells the story of the writer behind arguably the best movie in cinematic history, Citizen Kane. Famous for his wit, Herman Mankiewicz was one of the highest-paid screenwriters of the era. His charisma earned him invites to newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst's extravagant dinner parties, which gained him first-hand experience that he could draw upon when writing Hearst's thinly-veiled assembly, Charles Foster Kane. Mankiewicz was a complex man with unrespectable habits and honorable values. Although he was an alcoholic and a gambler, he helped Jewish refugees escape Nazi persecution and was seemingly the only one at MGM to stand against the company's deceitful propaganda that influenced California's 1934 gubernatorial race. Although Mank is more than the making of Citizen Kane, it parallels the film in its nonlinear portrayal of a tortured man who stood by his values till the end. It reveals the corruption within Golden Age Hollywood and acknowledges the still-present abuse of power by the highly influential through the eyes of a man whose only capacity to fight was in his words. From this point on, we may discuss elements of the plot for Mank that some could consider spoilers, so if you don't want to hear anything about the movie at this time, we hope you'll come back and listen to this at some point. So, Jackie, obviously, Mank is a movie about, largely about a movie and about Hollywood, and it's uh, so heavily uh, references one of the most famous movies of all time, as you mentioned, and arguably the best, according to many people, Citizen Kane. So I think you were maybe planning to rewatch that before watching Mank. And I myself had recently started to rewatch it and got interrupted. And so I finished that before watching Mank this weekend. Were you able mm. to rewatch Citizen Kane? I'm just curious. Yeah, I managed to watch it before so that I was like, um, fresh on it. So if they like make references in mm-hmm. Mank, then I would immediately get it. Were you really glad you'd done that? Or, or what was your reaction then having done that? Yeah, there are, there are points where, for instance, his secretary's name is Rita Alexander. And I'm like, oh, that's who Susan Alexander, her name, that's probably where mm-hmm. it came from. Maybe, yeah. And then uh, with the reference to this point where he got stuck, about that woman in the ferry uh, right. that that uh, one of the characters sees for a minute and like it's stuck with him forever. I don't know if I would have remembered that without like watching it as recently as I had. Right. Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm with you. I'm, I'm. It had been a while since the last time I saw Citizen Kane, um, which I've seen a few times now, I believe, all the way through. And of course, I've seen like plenty of clips of it here and there. It's like one of those movies that if you're into movies and especially if you went to like film school or anything like that it's kind of ubiquitous and hard to avoid if you even wanted to which i'm not sure why you'd want to because it's a great movie i'm with you i'm not sure i would have quite remembered 
um, like the the woman in white with the parasol. It might have clicked. I, like that was one of those things that, as I rewatched Citizen Kane, as they started that story, I was like, "Oh yeah, this story. I remember this." And there's like something about the particular way he tells that story, and he, that he calls it a parasol that is that like kind of sticks with me at least. Um, so I think I might have remembered that if it when it came up in Mink, but I'm not positive. I am glad I rewatched it. To me, the biggest thing, maybe though, that that it references, of course, is like the the look, the aesthetic of Citizen right. Kane, um, because they, of course, shot the movie in black and white, and it, even though it was shot digitally, as so many, if not most, movies are these days, um, they did their best to try to make it look like a movie that was shot decades ago around the time the Citizen Kane was shot. It it was kind of, I was expecting it to maybe be in the 4-3 aspect ratio. So I was kind of surprised that it wasn't, um, but I didn't mind it either. I thought it was a nice sort of like compromise of having that black and white look and having it be a widescreen, which was not very common necessarily in 1941 when Citizen Kane came out. But um, yeah, the aesthetic of it, I thought was was cool to see what do you think of that yeah that was interesting that they used the red camera that's specifically for monochrome mm-hmm. filmmaking i thought it was interesting that they chose to go digital and then just like add these you know film filters and like the cigarette burns because mm-hmm. i feel like even though film is more costly i feel like they have the money for it because it's netflix and it's david fincher so <laughs> i feel like if they if he wanted to he could have shot in film to even capture that look more yeah but but that said though david fincher is known for doing lots of takes and apparently like the the big climactic party scene i think they said they did it 200 times wow yeah that's that's a that's another thing to consider so that that factors into the cost of film so (laughs) yeah i wonder if if it's possible to take digital and then master it to film they still do that because like some some um cinemas still use film right yeah i mean if i don't i'm not sure how common it is anymore because i feel like so much projection has gone digital too but like definitely for a while there um and still i don't think it's uncommon and maybe it's still the most common thing when when you're in a movie theater these days which I'm not going to any, but right. <laughs> um, anyway, like, yeah, I, I, what you're talking about for listeners is that, you know, even as people were starting to move towards digital to shoot on, they were still ending on film so that it could be projected because most projectors were still film. But I feel like most of the movie theaters I was going to before the pandemic seemed like they'd switched over to digital. And honestly, right, like, yeah. I was kind of glad for it because I thought there was something lost in going from digital to film that like it makes more sense to project in digital for um, an end in the same medium you kind of began in. And also like, it seems easier to maintain. I can't tell you how many times I went to like an old theater where they just weren't keeping up their projectors and you could tell if you like knew what to look for. And it would just like drive me nuts to see like the bulb going bad or like, you know, the film print, if you didn't go the first weekend being all scratched up or something. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's some, I mean, I know that there's like a purist element to wanting to see a, a, a film projected on film, but I do think there are plenty of arguments for 
not doing that too, just for the sake of overcoming human error and things like that. Right. I just think when something's shot on film versus when it's shot on digital, there's like Mm -hmm. a different look to it. And I mean, I get why they didn't shoot on film just because of how many takes uh, Fincher does and like how much footage he he collects he accrues so yeah i mean that makes sense because then they, they would be like so in the red yeah <laughs> yeah I, I would think it would be cost prohibitive if nothing else yeah. but um I, but that said like i i i did not mind what they did here and I, I saw critics like that i follow on twitter and elsewhere not all i saw a few who were like didn't understand like what is the point of them going this route and almost seemed upset about it. And I don't get that at all. Like to me, upset it's just over like, making it look like film. Yeah. Like what? Like basically I think there was people who already didn't like the movie. Cause it's certainly a movie that seems like it's being critically, um, uh, accepted, you know, mostly positive reviews, but there's always going to be people who don't like something and that's fine. Um, I just didn't understand, the argument that some people seem to be making about like, why did they waste time on trying to make it look like old film and putting in those cigarette burns that indicate like a a real change in old movies um, instead of like focusing more on making it just a better movie overall. I'm like, well, you just didn't like the movie. then, So that's (laughs) like, whatever, like I, I I I think directors should be able to make aesthetic choices and, just because you didn't like the way the movie turned out doesn't mean it was wrong to make that choice. It's not like they decided like, you know what, we're not going to work on the script or we're not going to work on the acting. You just didn't like it, you know? Like it's two different things, but people are allowed to have the opinions they have. Just but you're allowed yeah, to disagree. Yeah, I wonder with what what else did they not like about the movie? Cuz I know like technically they went about trying to make it look as and sound as old as yeah. possible, like even with the audio they mixed down to mono. I don't really know. I don't know what the answer is to your question. Because, like, going into it, I'd seen enough. And it's just a couple of critics that I I saw saying this. I can't even recall who now, or I don't want to mention. If I do recall, there's, like, one I don't. He seemed very angry about it. But um, (laughs) anyway, like, I don't know what the deal was. Because, like, I was almost expecting it to look like an Instagram filter from how bad they said it looked. And... I'm like, I did not see the same movie they did. I feel like <laughs> like it, it yeah, seemed I didn't, fine. I think I didn't think it was distracting. No, not like how the CGI in the Irishman was like, sure, which especially at the beginning, I had less problems with than than you and, and Chuck, as I remember from our discussion <laughs> of that movie. But I get it. I get it. Like and, and it's one of those things that I guess like if if you notice something it starts to bug you it's hard to like look away especially if you're not enjoying the movie so to me that's like i was saying it's more just an indicator that you're not into the movie if that's the sort of thing that's bothering you you know but i thought i thought it was cool i I liked the look (laughs) of it i also enjoyed the sound of it of how it sounded like you're in a movie theater you know like and that was kind of especially now having not been to a movie theater in what like eight months or something it was kind of like a cool feeling to have the sound, have that echoey sensation that you hear just when you're in a movie theater. <laughs> and like, I don't know if you noticed that in, in the setup that you have, but um, it was kind of like a nice feeling to me to 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 simulate that and like feel like I was sort of in a movie theater watching this. Um, did you notice that, though? 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, they. I also read that that they they mixed it down um, from the usual stereo to right. mono and everything. And then they also uh, made a, a score to match that time, mm-hmm. which I thought was was great. I wish that so in Citizen Kane they used a lot with uh, with lighting, and you know, like they have really dramatic. Uh, chiaroscuro lighting and i guess with this one it's harder because with digital you have more latitude so right. it's harder to create those you know dramatic contrasts but uh you know i thought i i, I would like ha- to have seen more dramatic effects but i guess it might be harder with digital yeah but one thing i did notice they did in mank and simulated sort of from citizen kane was um, I remember, I don't, I don't remember if I read it or heard it in an interview with Orson Welles or somebody talking about Orson Welles, but apparently, like, when he was making Citizen Kane, you know, he came from theater, and this was his first movie, famously, and he assumed that lighting worked sort of the same way that it does in theater. So at the end of a scene, he would have the lights come down, um, and it gave like the transitions in that movie such a distinct look where like you see the lighting change as there's a fade or a cross oh, yeah, fade. Yeah. And it's very unique in a way to Citizen Kane. I'm not, I can't think of other movies that have done it, but he basically did it because he didn't understand how it worked. And I think, I think it was at some point Greg Toland, the famous cinematographer from the movie um, was like, you know, you don't have to do that. Right. <laughs> like we could just fade it out. Um, but it's such like a happy, um, I guess not mistake, but just sort of like one of those things that was like, because he didn't, he'd never made a movie. He didn't adhere necessarily to the ways people did things. And that was like one of those happy kind of accidents that like he decided to do it that way because he didn't know better. And it was just kind of gave it this interesting, cool look of the scene transitions being super dramatic. And they seemed to, uh, simulate that here in Mank. And I Mm. guess, like, maybe that's one of the things that they could simulate, because as you were saying, like, you know, like, you can see everything in digital, so it's harder to kind of, like, do some things that maybe they could do in a 1941 movie and get away with it with as much information as digital is going to deliver. Right. Um, But but the transitions, I I, I appreciated that they did those. I don't know. Like, to me, like, the the thing is, like, the people who, who... didn't like the movie and there and then couldn't get into the aesthetic of it. Like I, I at least, even if I didn't like the movie, which I did, I would understand why they did it, you know? And there's something weird to me about like, not, not allowing for that as a, as a, or, or questioning it as, as like the right way to go. Like, I think it adds so much to the movie to make it so connected to the story that we all know, you know? Right. Another thing that I thought was interesting after watching Citizen Kane directly before starting Mank is how close Tom Burke was at capturing Orson Welles' voice. Like, mm-hmm. I was like, whoa, it sounds just like him. Yeah. Because you're, you're so used to hearing it for the past, like, two hours. Uh, to, to, to hear it again, it's like, he really captured his voice very accurately. <laughs> Agreed. And he didn't quite look like him. Like there were some shots where he was like sort of at the right angle where you could kind of pretend it was Orson Welles. But I don't give a shit about that either. Like he's playing a character. He's not, you know, um, he doesn't right. need to look like him. It's not an impersonation. But yeah, you're right. His voice was was pretty goddamn spot on. <laughs> and I actually, I you know, I always take 
IMDb trivia with a grain of salt, uh, but I don't know if you read this, but like I, I did read there that um, apparently David Fincher had, I, I, what's his name? Maurice LaMarche, I think, the guy who did uh, The Brain from Pinky and the Brain. Oh, really? Um, who like basically he, he his that, that Pinky and the Brain voice is basically like an Orson Welles voice. You right. Know? And he did the voice for Orson Welles in um, uh, Ed Wood where Vincent D'Onofrio plays him on screen, but they dubbed him with, oh. uh, with with this guy. And so according to the IMDb trivia, at least, David Fincher had that guy come in and do the lines for Orson Welles. And then he had Tom Burke study those recordings to get his voice down for it. Uh, oh, wow. be- because that guy's kind of like the go-to dude to do <laughs> an Orson Welles voice. Um, so I thought that was interesting, and they and it it made sense, like n- knowing what we know about David Fincher, that he wouldn't like go for the dubbed voice. He'd want Tom Burke to do it because he's like very demanding. I think you could say, <laughs> um, but I thought it worked, man. I thought it was so good. Um, yeah, I feel like we've spent so much of the time already talking mainly about Citizen Kane and the and comparing the two movies, but like, what did you think of this as a movie? Like, it seems like you liked it from your review and just the way we've been talking about it. Like, but do you have specific thoughts you want to share about the movie at this point? Yeah, I thought it was solid as a film. Uh, I feel like as a film that's trying to inform you about old Hollywood, I feel like you need to know a lot about the people who are in this movie to know more of the their backstory. But I mean, what's shown is enough for, for the story, but I feel like knowing more about them just adds more to it and like what you can take away from it more. Uh, but as a story, I feel like it it's also very timely. It felt very timely, especially the events surrounding the election and uh, MGM basically creating fake news right. <laughs> to uh, influence the voters and and the way that they talk about these views of, you know, about people sharing the wealth within the country, uh, about socialism and, and how they write them off as communists and and things like that. That's still very prevalent today, especially with with uh, people reacting to politicians like Bernie Sanders. Or, or just Joe Biden at this point. Like, yeah. you listen to the <laughs> so, right and they call him a socialist. And it's like people who, <laughs> a lot of people who voted for Joe Biden are like, we wish he was a socialist. But, um, <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Anyway, so, I, yeah, yeah I, I, I'm completely with you. It, it it does seem very timely, and it's like one of those things. It's like kind of an, another happy accident because this movie was first written in the '90s by David Fincher's father, and I I mean I think all that stuff was already in there. It's just sort of like history rhyming with itself more than anything, yeah. you know. But but that also brings to mind. I, I don't know how you felt about this rewatching Citizen Kane as you just did, but there's so much about the the Kane story that you can kind of see in Trump now um, in some ways of just like this megalomaniac who just wants everyone to love him, you know, and just like grasping right. for power at every turn. And I, I actually, the, the, the podcast, um, We Hate Movies, uh, which I listen to quite often, every December they do a We Love Movies Month. And so they'll, it's a weekly podcast. And so each week of December, they'll talk about a movie they love. And so this year they did Citizen Kane and they, mm-hmm. they kind of got into this, what I'm talking about of like, you know, Kane paralleling Trump. And they said, basically like in a way, Citizen Kane is Trump. If 
the Access Hollywood grabbed them by the tape had uh, actually taken him down <laughs> instead <laughs> of him still being elected, you know? So I, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I feel like the difference, though, is that with Charles Foster Kane, he has more, like, integrity than Trump. Like, like he, the only reason... He was like, go ahead, tell everyone that that I right. have this mistress is because like he wants to be he wants to stick to his beliefs, you know, like he, right. he doesn't want to seem like he's using his power for yeah, uh, corruptly. So like even when his, his friend wanted to write that bad review about his wife's performance in the opera, in the opera house that he built for her. Um, to make her seem more legit, you know, because mm -hmm. they put singer in quotes. Uh, like, it's just all about him fighting. Like, he wants to be loved by people, but he doesn't care if people hate him as long as he seems like he's being upright, as long as he's sticking to who he is. And he's not, like, trying to um, use his power to make himself look good. Like, he wants people to love him for who he is. Sure. And, yeah, and like, no. I feel like with Trump, he's like, he's like, as long as everyone loves me and I don't care about lying, I don't care about, um, you know, just making up facts to 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 keep my power and to like be revered as like a dictator or something like that. Right, right. No, I certainly don't think that there, it's 100 percent overlap between Trump and Kane. I just think there's enough there that it's easy to be like, huh, this reminds me of someone as you're watching it and be like, right. and just sort of, you know, marvel at how much um, life can t imitate art and vice versa. Right. Since this is, of course, like, or Citizen Kane, I should say, was a thinly veiled, of course, uh, um, biopic of William Randolph Hearst in a lot of ways. Not every way, but a lot of ways. Right. But Kane certainly has like a certain, like, he has an internal logic and a consistency that Trump certainly lacks. So I don't think it's in any way a one-to-one -one comparison, but there's just enough to notice, you know? Right. But I also think that integrity is is why it reflects uh, Mankiewicz a lot more. Because mm -hmm. you see him in this movie stick to what he believes in, even though he knows that he is going to lose if he, if he does that specifically. Right. You see that specifically in the the dinner during the uh, election night and his candidate is obviously losing and he goes to uh, the guy from MGM. He's like, oh, I'll, I'll bet you double or nothing right. for my debt that, that my candidate is going to win, even though it's like very apparent that he's going to lose that bet. And, and he could, you know, even he even has a chance, like he might lose his family because his wife doesn't want to be in debt. Um, but he's he's like he wants to stick by his morals, and right. and so he does that even though it will ruin him. Like how uh, Charles Foster Kane sticks by something even though he knows he would lose the election. Yeah, I think that Mank is certainly not the first to kind of come at this aspect of this story. Like I don't know if you ever saw R RKO two eighty one, the old HBO movie that was about the making of Citizen Kane with like Lee Schreiber and John Malkovich playing Herman Mankiewicz. And there's been plenty of writing and other documentation about this as well. But like, you know, as much as, as you can say that Citizen Kane is about um, William Randolph Hearst in so many ways, there's a lot of Mankiewicz in, in Kane as well. You know, <laughs> like he was kind of putting himself into that character as well of like this guy who's like self-destructive, 
um, and sticks to his guns to a fault sometimes, maybe in terms of like what it's going to do to his personal life and the people around him. Um, so he, he, he definitely injects himself into it, whether that was a conscious decision or not. And then that even takes us into like this movie also popularizes the idea that Mankiewicz is the main, if not sole author of the screenplay, which is definitely disputed. Um, right. <laughs> but Fincher has definitely laid his card down and said, like, this is what I'm going with in terms of hit the story he's telling. But that's not something that everyone believes, certainly. So I do think that that's worth pointing out. This is a good movie and it's a good story. That doesn't mean it's real. Um, and this kind of connects to the conversation we had, I believe it was last week, when we kind of went on a tangent about The Crown <laughs> um, and another Netflix property, actually. Um, and, you know, don't let this necessarily be your history book or your history lesson, you know, like if you find it interesting, there's plenty more to read and to watch and to take in about Citizen Kane and about the people it's about and all um, but anything to say on that, Jackie? In terms of like how much is based on history and how much details they put in the movie, I feel like this could even be turned into a series because there are moments where I'm like, who who's that again? Like, and and uh, did we see that guy before? Like, for instance, that guy who's directing the propaganda for MGM, and like he mm -hmm. did it because he wanted to finally be a director. I was like, did we see that guy before? I don't really remember and like and like they were like really good friends and i and i know i didn't know where that came from i mean like it's it the scene was still powerful when you know the guy died and 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 but i, I there's like so many characters that sometimes i lose track of who's who and and yeah. and in relation to what like especially the guy who who's a uh the son-in-law of of mayor the the guy who who produced uh gone with the wind david o selznick oh that's david o selznick and then yeah. irving thalberg i felt like they were kind of interchangeable they felt interchangeable in terms of like mayor's right hand man like they were always there talking to mank saying like oh you can't do this and you need to do this i felt like they they kind of blurred together for me maybe it's just mm -hmm. because there's so many people it's hard to keep track yeah I think that goes back to what you brought up before of like, how much does this movie stand on its own? I think it does, but I do think you were right when you said like, if you know Citizen Kane as a movie and the story behind it and any of that, like it's certainly easier for this movie to have a deeper meaning for you. And it's, it's a little bit of a, like an inside baseball sort of thing where like, if you are very um, educated uh, about like who all the players were in Hollywood in the 1930s and 40s, like you're going to maybe have a lot more opinions and be able to follow some of this more closely. I do. And, and I just caught this. Like, I didn't know who that guy was either, except that um, I remembered he was in the scene at least once before um, in the movie where, where Mankiewicz first arrives and, and meets Marion Davies. Mm -hmm. on set and he talks to a dude and he says like what are you doing here he's like oh, i'm getting paid to be the like uh ac or the gaffer or something i forget what he was was doing there or maybe the dp i don't remember um but that was the guy um, oh okay okay yeah, yeah it, it was very brief and it was like all they did was do that to set up that scene later i guess <laughs> but 
yeah, it, you, you could blink and miss it. I just happen to remember it. Um, yeah, I guess it, it's a movie that you need to watch a couple times to catch all the details because there's, sure. so, there's so much happening, which I mean, it makes sense because it's about this guy's life and it's not like even about his entire life. It was just mm -hmm. about this one part of him, you know, writing this screenplay and then all the moments that like led up to that or like inspired that. Right. Yeah. And again, like, I don't think this this movie should be taken as a history lesson by any mean. But was there anything in it um, that you found to be revealing and sparked your interest to maybe look into more or something like that? Like, and I could throw out there for me that, like, I appreciated that this movie kind of showed a different side of Hollywood because I, f I feel like people think of Hollywood as being like this liberal place and it shows that they weren't in the tank necessarily for for a Democrat or especially a socialist, you know, because they they were all in for the Republican. And that becomes such a plot point of like the internal battle of Mank himself, of being someone who doesn't believe in what his employers believe and how much is he going to push back on them. And, you know, you could argue whether that was like part of his downfall um, and you know, he died very young and sort of right. like, um, you know, he like I said, he's self-destructive person. And th this might have been part of it. But like the fact that they showed, was it Louis B. Mayer? Because um, to be sort of like Hearst's lapdog in a lot of ways and just sort of this yeah. guy who was like so against Upton Sinclair as the socialist um, candidate for governor and all this. Like people think of Hollywood as being liberal, like I said, and I mean, in this case, they were in the tank for the other side. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think that that made me realize that as well, because it because when I think about it, especially back then, it's a, a business more than anything. And, and they want to make money and be rich and make money off of people, not paying people as much as they want so they can like keep the money for themselves. And And you could see that, you know, in the scene where it's like during the depression and he's like, Oh, we have to cut everyone's salary by half. And then they're like, Oh, are you going to do that too? And he like completely deflects yeah, the yeah. question. So it's like obvious. He, he, he just wants to keep the salary that he's making, even though the, the company's losing money and like pay everyone half to compensate for that, which is like so crooked. Um, but I mean, it still happens today, like especially even more than at that time because you see you know billionaires uh, making money off of people that they're not paying even a living wage and mm -hmm. that i feel like that's another part of this film that is is still timely today yeah i mean when are we going to get a citizen kane about jeff bezos you know? <laughs> yeah um, somebody should do that right yeah and that scene you're talking about with mayor where he basically convinces his employees to take a pay cut and then deflects. He basically walks off stage and gets and asks for a performance review because he's just fucking acting. Um, you know, he goes up to to Mank and his brother, the other Mank, Joseph Mankiewicz, the director of All About Eve and other movies, um, and is just like, so how'd I do? <laughs> Essentially, because it's just bullshit. Yeah. And then we even see later after... Um, one of those funerals, I forget who for, I think for Thalberg, who's like his right-hand man, um, he looks so sad coming out of the the service and then he gets in his car and you see him just like drop his hanky out the door oh, yeah. 
<laughs> on the ground and just this move of like, yeah, okay, I'm done performing. I can get on with my fucking life now. Yeah, I they made a shit about this. Such a little shit. <laughs> yeah, but I, I I found that interesting. Uh, the those sort of indictments of those like well known names from golden Hollywood, and I'm I'm not even gonna say again that I'm taking those as like that's who those people definitely were. But those right. are also not the first instances of me hearing like, hey, those guys aren't exactly who they portrayed themselves as, and. There's no reason to not think that, like, hey, they might have done some stuff to make themselves look better than they were and, you know, talk themselves up. And, again, read a book if you really want to know about this stuff. Don't take right. it from a movie that's a fictionalized account. But there's definitely um, other sourcing that claims that these people were kind of assholes and it's not hard to believe. Movies like this, uh, historical dramas, they're just supposed to encourage people to want to read more about the subject rather than use it as a, as a reliable source. Yeah. I'm curious to see what happens with this movie, Mank, though, because like we both liked it. We spent most of our time really talking about another movie, though. Um, <laughs> and, and we also talked about how how much we wonder if you needed to have seen that movie or be sort of versed in that movie and things around it to understand this movie and, and really take something away from it. I don't know how interesting this movie is to people who aren't like cinephiles and people who haven't seen Citizen Kane. I certainly think you could watch it and still understand the story. It's there, but like there's so much more to be had if you know about this stuff. And I'm curious to see if it does well or I mean, I'm not even sure what that means in this case because it's a Netflix movie and it doesn't have to do anything. It's it's like it's not a it, it wasn't meant for the box office in the first place. You right. Know? I feel maybe like it wouldn't have ever been made if, if it was. I feel like this film is going to be like other movies that are centered around the industry where it'll do well in awards season because it's like catered to the crowd that votes for the awards. So like mm -hmm. it'll do well there in terms of like it appealing to like the average viewer. I don't know. Like I feel like you do need to know the context of how it relates to Citizen Kane and then the people within the story. Like you need to know more about them for it to mean more to you. And they're like, oh, it's like, oh, it's him like talking to this right. character and like this character knew this character and then you know like just see them interacting whereas like if you didn't know anything about them at all i i feel like it it could just you know come off as as just a regular story that i don't know if it will work or not uh, right. if, the, if the like if the story is appealing to you because it like hinges on whether or not you find the character of herman mankiewicz interesting and if you want to follow his story throughout right which I think it's worth bringing up that personally, I thought this is one of Gary Oldman's better performances in a while. Like I thought he was good in Churchill, but that was such like a, I don't know, showy performance with like prosthetics and like yeah. almost, I don't want to say he's doing an impression because he's fucking Gary Oldman and he's a good actor <laughs> and all that. But it's a different movie. It's a different type of performance. This is more just like, here's Gary Oldman acting rather than Gary Oldman playing Winston Churchill. You know what I no, mean? No, I agree. Yeah. I feel like with, with Darkest Hour, uh, it was more about his performance than anything else. I felt like the story for that movie like is was kind of forgettable, forgettable mm -hmm. and like the execution wasn't as great as other Joe Wright movies. He's the one who directed that, right? Joe Wright? Yeah, yeah. 
And so, like, I feel like that was more of a vehicle for him to win the Oscar, which he eventually did. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, I, I've always loved Gary Oldman. I, I He sure. has been one of my most favorite actors since, I don't know, since forever. <laughs> so, uh, it's always, like, fun to watch him. Because, like, even in, in like, uh, movies that aren't well-received critically, you can still tell he's having fun playing these yeah. characters. And he very much, like, embodies these characters. And so, I appreciate that, you know? Like, he, even if it's, like, I don't know, like uh, that young adult uh, teen movie that he did with uh, Amanda Seyfried was like a little Red Riding Hood uh, adaptation. Like he was still having fun. So I don't, I don't even know anything about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I really enjoyed him in this movie. I mean, that said, he's playing 20 years younger. He's playing somebody who's 43 and he himself is 62. So yeah, it's like a yeah. 19 year difference. Um. <laughs> He's definitely doesn't seem like a 43 year old unless you're like, well, I guess in the in 1938 or whenever, um, you know, people looked older and yeah, he was also like a raging alcoholic. So maybe that aged him like you have to if you really want to believe that he's 43, you got to jump through some hoops. But it also doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But, yeah. Uh, I mean, they make, a, they make a little reference to it when they're like, oh, something, something at your age. And he's like, I'm 43. <laughs> oh, do, I don't remember that. But <laughs> sure. Yeah. So it's like they obviously think he's a lot older than he is. And he's like, I'm still yeah. Like even when he said that, I was like, oh, you're 43. Oh, shit. You yeah. don't look 43 I mean, he, at all. <laughs> he died at 55 because right. from you know, essentially being an alcoholic. Yeah. But yeah, um, I think it's worth seeing, especially if. You are a fan of Citizen Kane and old Hollywood, and especially if you've read any of that history and, and know who the players are. But I still think it's worth seeing, even if you haven't. I hope that doesn't scare people off, because I think it's just a good movie besides that. Um, any final thoughts? It's just like a collection of great performances from these actors. I especially liked Amanda Seyfried's performance as uh, Marion mm -hmm. Davies. I thought she did a great job, and I liked her friendship with Herman Mankiewicz and you know I wish I'd seen more of that uh, but then that would just be like a completely different movie right. but uh, I love their scenes together and I would love to see more movies about uh, golden age Hollywood with uh, focusing more on like the the actresses because I feel like you don't really hear their voices as much um, you know, it's more focused on on the men of Hollywood. And so, like, I feel like that that could be a thing. Maybe this will inspire interest in old Hollywood and they can, like, open up more stories that we haven't heard from before. I would love to see more in, in, in this era, more films set in this era. Sure. Hopefully. I, I'd, I'd watch something else along these lines. Definitely. Um, why not? Well, thank you, Jackie. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Stereoactive Presents, and thank you to our guest, Jacqueline Solar. The music in this podcast is composed by Hansdale Sue. My name is Jeremiah Lee McVeigh. If you like what you hear in this show, please rate and review it in Good Pods, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else that allows that. Doing so helps us to expand our audience, and it is much appreciated. And please follow us wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. Every little bit helps, and again, it is truly appreciated. You can also get in touch with us at stereoactivemedia at gmail.com. 
And you can find more information about this show and everything else the Stereoactive Media is involved with at stereoactivemedia.com. This podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media. Stereoactive Media.